Section 8 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 3, Part 2. Mary Beatrice endeavored to keep up an interest for her husband with the gay world by giving brilliant balls and entertainments and appearing often in public. The irreproachable purity of her life and her amiable conduct as a stepmother entitled her to universal respect, and notwithstanding her religion, she stood too high in public opinion for anyone to mix her name up with the popish plot accusations, although Coleman, one of its earliest victims, had been her secretary. The Duke of York himself began to recover his proper position in the court, and his levees at St. James's Palace were well attended again. But when the king was suddenly attacked with a fever towards the latter end of May, they were thronged with the time-serving courtiers. The king recovered, and the exclusionists, considering they had gone too far in their proceedings against James ever to be forgiven, determined, by a bold stroke, to rid him of the company of his fair-weather followers, to intimidate even his true-hearted friends, and, if possible, to drive him out of England again. Accordingly, Shaftesbury, with Russell, Cavendish, Titus Oates, and some others of the party, proceeded to Westminster Hall on the 26th of June, and represented to the grand jury the benefit that would accrue to the nation if the Duke of York were presented for recusancy, which would involve the forfeiture of two-thirds of his estates, as the laws against popery then stood. But the judges discharged the jury as soon as they understood that Shaftesbury and his coadjutors were practicing with them. Shaftesbury had also recommended the grand jury of Middlesex to indict the Duchess of Portsmouth as a common nuisance. Such indeed she was, and no mistake. But it was by no means a part of Shaftesbury's design to effect a reformation in her conduct, but to terrify her into becoming his absolute tool with the king for effecting the ruin of the Duke of York. If Burnett may be credited, Montague offered her six hundred thousand pounds in the name of the exclusionists, if she would induce Charles to pass the bill. Gladly would she have earned the bribe, but the king was inflexible on that point, yet it was her influence which prevailed on his majesty to send his brother back to Scotland. The cause assigned by her for her hostility to his royal highness was the old story that the duchess of york paid her no attention and was not so kind to her as to the duchess of mazarin and that during the king's late illness james had made no professions of service to her mary beatrice was at this momentous period an object of watchful observation to the enemies of her lord on the eighth of july lady sunderland writes to lord halifax the duchess of york is not with child she prays all day almost she is very melancholy. Her women will have it on account of Mrs. Sedley. She looks farther than that, if she has much wit as is thought by some. Her Royal Highness visited Cambridge the latter end of September, and while there gave a grand ball to propitiate the university. From Cambridge she came to Newmarket to join the Duke, who was there with their majesties for the October races. In the midst of those gay festive sports, Mary Beatrice and her lord bore anxious, aching hearts, for it was at that time the question of His Royal Highness's banishment from the court was daily debated in council. James was desirous of being permitted to defend himself from the attack which he knew would be made upon him at the approaching meeting of the Parliament, 
and the ministers were driving him beyond seas again charles temporized as usual by taking a middle course which was to send his brother back to scotland but with all possible marks of respect as his representative in the government of that realm where indeed the presence of the duke had been recently attended with beneficial results in tranquillizing the conflicting parties there the day after their return to london his majesty caused his pleasure to be notified to his royal highness and on the same day october eighteenth sixteen eighty addressed letters to his privy council and lords of the treasury of scotland wherein he says whereas now upon considerations of great importance to our service we have thought fit to send our most dear brother the duke of albany and york into that ancient kingdom we have signified our command to the duke of hamilton keeper of our palace of holyrood for voiding all the lodgings and removing all the goods and furniture now therein to the end that our palace with all the offices and conveniences thereunto belonging may be left entirely for the use and accommodation of our said most dear brother and of our dearest sister the duchess with their retinues allowing nevertheless our chancellor to continue in his lodgings as formerly it is therefore our will and pleasure and we do hereby require you to take particular care that our said order be punctually and speedily obeyed and cause the rooms to be put in as good a condition as is possible for that purpose this document is dated october eighteenth sixteen eighty the same day the king's pleasure was communicated to the duke of york with directions for him to embark for scotland on the twentieth his fair and faithful consort was as usual ready to share his adverse fortunes she gave her farewell levy at st james's palace on the nineteenth and received the adieu of all the friends who came to take leave of her in bed mary beatrice had once more to sustain the painful trial of parting with her child whom she was not permitted to take to scotland with her and she never saw her again james perceiving that those who had succeeded in driving him a third time into banishment did not intend to stop there requested the king to give him a pardon under the great seal including as is usual in that sort of protective document every offence of which it is possible for any person to be accused charles considered it derogatory to his brother's high rank and injurious to his honour to have such an instrument drawn up in connection with his name and james in the bitterness of his spirit regarded the refusal as an intimation that he was to be sacrificed to the malice of his foes for one half hour of his life he appeared ready to fall into the snares of the machiavellian ambassador of france for he exclaimed in the climax of his indignation that if he were pushed to extremity and saw himself likely to be entirely ruined by his enemies he would find means to make them repent it nay that he would throw himself into the arms of louis the fourteenth for protection barillon who was in hopes that the sense of intolerable wrong which was burning in the bosom of the unfortunate prince might be fanned into an open flame so as to induce him to take up arms against the king his brother or at least to excite seditions in scotland made him unlimited offers of money and every other facility for raising an insurrection james's disaffection evaporated in that burst of passion which fox and many other writers have endeavoured to torture into the blackest treason although the sole evidence that he felt his injuries is confined to that one unguarded sally 
which after all only implied that he did not mean to fall without a struggle if james had suffered himself to be drawn into the plots of barillon he would have been startled at finding himself mixed up in a strange and most degrading fellowship with buckingham sunderland montague hampton harbord algernon sydney and the duchess of portsmouth his deadliest enemies who were at that period the bribed tools of france keenly however as the duke of york felt the ingratitude with which his services to his king and country had been requited he complied with his majesty's commands by embarking with his duchess on the appointed day charles who knew how severe a struggle it had cost his brother to yield obedience to his mandate and that both he and mary beatrice were overwhelmed with grief at being separated from their children endeavoured to soothe their wounded feelings by paying them the affectionate attention of accompanying them with some of his nobles as far down the river as woolrich or according to barillon to lee where they parted the king gave them fair words observes the sarcastic diplomatist but the duke of york betrayed the greatest signs of misery believing himself abandoned by all the world and that he would not be permitted to remain even in scotland long the following elegant lines on the subject of the embarkation of the duke and his beautiful consort appeared soon after in the second part of dryden's absalon and achitophel go injured hero while propitious gales soft as thy consort's breath inspire thy sails well may she trust her beauties on a flood where thy triumphant fleets so oft have rode safe on thy breast reclined her rest be deep rocked like a nereid by the waves asleep where happiest dreams her fancy entertain and to elysian fields convert the main go injured hero while the shores of tyre at thy approach so silent shall admire who on thy thunder shall their thoughts employ and greet thy landing with a trembling joy a cordial it assuredly must have been to the sad hearts of the royal exiles could they have understood half the pleasure with which their arrival was anticipated on the friendly shores of scotland they had as usual a long and dangerous passage for they encountered a terrible storm at sea and were beating about for nearly five days and nights in the rough october gales before they could make kirkaldy bay one of their suite writes to a friend in london we have been in great difficulties at sea insomuch that though we serve the best of masters we begin to wish that there were no such thing as popery in the world or that all mankind would come into it for we you know have no such zeal for anything as our own ease and do complain more than ever to be thus tossed about and it is with admiration that we behold the great spirit of our master stooping to this coarse usage it was on monday october twenty fifth that the duke and duchess arrived with the evening's tide in kirkaldy roads about ten o'clock at night the duke of roths lord chancellor of scotland who had kept a vigil lookout for their long expected sails instantly dispatched his nephew mr francis montgomery to compliment their royal highnesses on their arrival but sick as mary beatrice was of her stormy voyage it was not judged prudent for her to come on shore that night the next morning his grace sent the lord justice clerk to inquire his royal highness's pleasure concerning his disembarkation the duke and duchess landed that morning at eleven o'clock and were received by the duke of roths some of the lords of the council and most of the nobility and gentry of the adjacent shires 
who kissed their royal highnesses hands on the shore which was crowded with a mixed multitude who came to congratulate them on their safe arrival in scotland the duke of roths having offered their royal highnesses the hospitality of his house at leslie about nine miles distant they proceeded thither escorted by a troop of his majesty's scotch guards attended by a noble train of coaches and many of the nobility and gentry on horseback so gallant a company had perhaps never swept through the long straggling street of kirkaldy since the days when an independent sovereign of scotland kept court in the kingdom of fife leslie house is seated in a richly wooded park on a picturesque eminence between the river leven and the water of lotree which unite their sparkling streams in a romantic glen in the plaisance the present mansion occupies only the frontage of the site of the palace where the duke of roths feasted the duke and duchess of york with their retinue and all the aristocracy of the district the former edifice was built on the model of holyrood house and in rival splendor to that ancient seat of royalty having a gallery three feet longer than that at holyrood hung with fine historical portraits on either side and richly furnished the ducal palace at leslie was destroyed by fire in the year seventeen sixty three but the stately garden terraces leading down by successive flights of broad stone steps with carved balustrades to the shrubberies and the vale in whose bosom the bright waters meet are the same which mary of modena and her ladies paced in jewelled pride and listened to the music of the mountain stream rushing to his bride in the depth of the wooded ravine below those woods were then tinted with bright autumnal hues and even to eyes accustomed to italian scenery the spot was calculated to convey a favourable impression of the natural beauties of scotland of these mary beatrice had as yet only seen the bold and rugged features of a wintry landscape with snow-clad hills and swollen torrents her first visit to scotland having been made at an ungenial season of the year at leslie everything wore a festive and smiling aspect and proffered comfort and repose to the royal exiles after their stormy voyage and a yet more harassing contention with evil days in england nor was leslie devoid of classic interest for the village fane occupies the site of one of a more ancient date celebrated by the poet king of scotland james i as christ kirk on the green there is a tree on that green called king jemmy's tree which village tradition boldly affirms to have been planted by the royal bard a fond conceit since the tree a stunted oak has not assuredly seen two centuries and is scarcely old enough to favor the more probable notion that it is a memorial of the last and most unfortunate of all the scottish monarchs who bore the fated name of james stuart planted by him during his visit with his consort mary deste at leslie house in the autumn of sixteen eighty tradition has also made some blunders in confusing relics and memorials of the consort of james the second with those of scotland's fair and fatally celebrated sovereign mary stuart whose name hallows many gloves fans watches et tu and cabinets with other toys not older than the close of the seventeenth century the long white glove embroidered with black silk for instance now exhibited in the museum of the antiquarian society of edinburgh is the veritable glove of mary queen of scots if it ever did belong to a royal mary stuart pertained to her who was entitled to that name only in virtue of her marriage with james stuart duke of york 
and was possibly worn by her when in mourning for her little daughter the princess isabella the mistake has naturally arisen from the fact that when james succeeded to the crown of the britannic empire his consort bore the title of queen mary in scotland as well as england and in scotland her name was dear to a generation who had known her when she dwelt among them but when that generation passed away and the descendants of old cavalier and jacobite families found among the hordes of grand dame and ancient aunt trifles that had been treasured as memorials of queen mary they forgot the intermediate queen consort so called and invested all such heirlooms with the distinction of relics of her whose name in spite of knox or buchanan will be superior in interest to any other while a spark of chivalry lingers in a scottish bosom the duke and duchess of york were splendidly entertained for three days and nights at leslie house by their magnificent host and his kind-hearted duchess days of unbounded hospitality which was extended to all the loyal aristocracy of the district who came to pay their compliments to the heir of the crown and his young and lovely consort there is an exquisite portrait of mary beatrice by Lely in the collection of the earl of roths at leslie house representing her such as she was at that period of her life and in the costume which she had then wore her hair is arranged in its natural beauty clustering in full curls round the brow and descending in flowing ringlets on the bosom a style far more in unison with the classic outline of her features and the expressive softness of her melting eyes than the lofty coiffure which she often wore her dress is scarlet embroidered and fringed with gold her tucker and loose sleeves of delicate cambric a rich and ample scarf of royal blue fringed with gold and edged with pearls crosses one shoulder and falls over the lap in magnificent drapery to the ground she is sitting in a garden by a pillar her left hand clasps the neck of a beautiful white italian greyhound a tree that overshadows her is wreathed with honeysuckles and roses her age was under twenty-two when this portrait was painted it was one of Lely's last and finest works of art he died that same year so mary beatrice must have sat for the portrait before she quitted london for the express purpose of presenting it to the duke of roths but like many other pictures of royal and noble personages it is wrongly dated on friday the twenty ninth of october their royal highnesses departed from leslie house and were attended by their courteous host the lord chancellor of scotland and many of the greatest nobles to burntisland their train still increasing as they advanced at burntisland they were received with shooting of great guns ringing of bells acclamations of the people and all the expressions of joy imaginable which continued till their royal highnesses went on board the charlotte yacht with them went his grace of ross and the persons of the highest rank the other yachts with several other boats and all the boats about burdisland were filled with the nobility and gentry of the train forming a grand aquatic pageant with their pennons and gala dresses in their passage to leith they were saluted by the great guns from his majesty's castle of edinburgh from the bastions at leith and the men-of-war and other ships both in the road and harbour of leith the shore was so throng says our authority with persons of all ranks that the noise of the cannon trumpets kettle-drums and drums were almost drowned with the loud and reiterated acclamations of the people for the safe arrival of their royal highnesses which was about five in the afternoon one of the gentlemen of the duke's household complains that they arrived in the dusk of the evening by which pursues he 
the glory of our entry was much eclipsed this person insinuates that sufficient attention was not paid to their royal highnesses on this occasion but from the following account by an eye-witness of the animating scene we should imagine that their reception must have been most gratifying and complete at their landing at leith their royal highnesses were met by the lords of his majesty's privy council ushered by their macers several ladies were also attending on the shore to offer their service to the duchess their royal highnesses were received by the earl of linlithgow colonel of his majesty's regiment of guards at the head of several companies of the regiment and were attended by the sheriffs and most of the gentlemen of the three lothians and next adjacent shires who made a lane on both sides of the street through the whole town of leith after the king's troop of guards marched the nobility and gentry that were on horseback and after them a great train of coaches filled with the council and nobility and their royal highnesses had made choice of the lord justice clerk's coach to proceed in from leith to the water-gate at the abbey of holyrood house their royal highnesses were guarded by the train bands and militia regiment of this city consisting of forty-four companies who made a lane for their royal highnesses and their train to pass betwixt leith and edinburgh all the while they were upon the way the great guns from the castle and other places prepared on purpose saluted them the whole body of the people universally shouting with great joy and cheerfulness lord preserve his majesty and their royal highnesses the duke and duchess of albany being come to the water-gate near the palace royal they were met by the lord provost magistrates and city council of edinburgh in their best formalities where the lord provost kneeling and having kissed his royal highness's hand delivered to him the silver keys of the city and heartily welcomed him in the name of the whole of the citizens to his majesty's good town of edinburgh from this to the palace their royal highnesses were guarded by two or three hundred of the best citizens with gilded partisans and in the outer court were received by several other companies of his majesty's guards in the guard hall they were received by their graces the lords archbishops of st andrews and glasgow and several other lords of the clergy where his grace the lord primate complimented their royal highnesses in the name of the orthodox clergy there the lieutenant governor of the castle of edinburgh delivered to his royal highnesses the keys of the castle all the bells of the city continued ringing most of the night and all the streets of the city were filled with great bonfires whither many of the citizens repaired to drink their majesty's and royal highnesses health nor was anything to be seen but a universal joy in the countenance of all here an evil omen occurred amidst the rejoicings for the arrival of the royal pair for the celebrated great gun called mons meg being fired in honour of this event by an english cannoneer was in the firing ribbon this the scots resented extremely says sir john lauder of fountain hall thinking the english might of malice have done it purposely they having no cannon as big as she saturday the first of november the lord bishop of edinburgh with all the clergy in and about this city in their canonical habits kissed his royal highness's hand the bishop of edinburgh expressed the general satisfaction of the orthodox clergy for his royal highness's safe arrival and assured him of their fervent prayers for his sacred majesty and the royal line tuesday the second of november being the first day of sessions the senators of the college of justice 
with all the other members thereof in a great body in their gowns ushered by their macers went to the palace where having kissed his royal highness's hand the lord president of the session in the name of the lawyers of this kingdom complimented him upon his arrival as did the lord justice clerk in the name of the lord's commissioners of his majesty's justiciary who in their scarlet gowns attended by the members of their court and ushered by their macers waited likewise upon his royal highness and kissed his hand nor indeed was there anything wanting to express the general joy of all here for the happy arrival of so excellent a prince and so dear to this kingdom end of section eight